And one of the things that happens when an investor comes in, I would say this is even without an investor, but even much more important when an investor comes in, and I think even more important when a private equity comes in. It's all about the team, it's not about you. And sometimes, especially if you're a first-time CEO like I was, you may just not know. Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Today, I'm excited to chat with Afonso Delanos, the founder of UserZoom. Welcome to the show, Afonso. Thank you so much for having me, Phil. It's a pleasure. So the way that I like to start this interview, it's asking about what problem does your company solve? That's a great first question, uh, because I always say, hey, let's fall in love with the problem before you launch your business. So the problem we're trying to solve is uh, to help businesses um, really understand their end users and understand specifically uh, not only who they are, um, but also how they behave and um, kind of test and measure the quality of the experience they have with digital products. So we call this user experience research. Um, and our, our company uh, uh, provides a user experience insights system that helps businesses uh, you know, test and measure user experience of digital products. Ultimately, um, if, if, if they run research, if they get to understand the customers and the users before their customers, uh, they probably have a better chance of designing a great killer digital experience that ultimately will become uh, or will impact business results. So that's really what we're doing. That's great. So let's dive deeper into that a little bit. So let's say I'm a SaaS product uh, and I'm having a, a little bit of issue with retention, with churn. Churn, you know, kills SaaS business every single day. Uh, how can user Zoom help me with that? That's a great question again. Um, Two uh, great questions, Phil, to start with. So great to start uh, like this. Um, uh, I am I'm actually well known internally in the company as the retention freak. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, retention is everything for a SaaS business. So, like you said, so and there's multiple ways to look at it: grow, you know, uh, gross or net uh, revenue, customer, all, all sorts of stuff. And I think that you that's what you have to do as a SaaS business. And so um, when you look at um, uh, retention, you know. Um, in today's world where uh, software is purchased uh, by users uh, sometimes, right? You don't, it's not like the old way or the old times when, uh, you know, let's say the, you know, uh, chief uh, level or the chief information officer or the CTO or, you know, the VPs would buy software for everybody. Today, software is, is bought or is purchased by the end users. And when and you usually buy with a monthly subscription or with an annual subscription, and so in the past, once again, uh, it was purchased and it was installed everywhere, right? Um, whether it was a startup or uh, more specifically in an enterprise, you have thousands of users and you just had them use the product, right? Uh, but in the SaaS uh, world we live in now, the users buy it and the users use it, and if after the let's just say the term, let's just for, for the sake of this conversation, let's think about a year or an annual subscription. If after a year or even a few months, um, if you don't use the product, if you don't have adoption and usage that can prove 
the validity or the value of the product, um, you know, simply, you simply uh, the, the company is not going to renew, right? So really, it's a much more, I would say, much more um, a fair and um, the right way to, to acquire or to purchase uh, software, to continue purchasing software. It's either providing value or not. Now, having said that, you can break that down into, into multiple stages. So for instance, when you buy, um, you, know, you want to buy something um, and uh, start using it right away. Have a great onboarding experience. You know, get going uh, easily. Um, today, in today's world, we don't like to call customer support or, call, or, or read manuals or go to YouTube to figure out how to use a product, which sometimes it happens, right, uh, with many products out there. Um, so, yeah, build, um, build a product that, that has a, a phenomenal onboarding experience. You only have one chance to provide a great first experience, right? There's only one chance. Um, so uh, great UX and great UX design that understands clearly what the end user is going to need, is going to look for, and even exceed expectations in that sense, you know, in, in that sense, by providing them with guidance um, and, and, again, convenience and ease of use. That is absolutely critical for that onboarding experience. And, you know, when retention actually starts or when the retention strategy should start, you know, whether it's from customer success or product people or account managers or whatever, it starts on day one, right? As soon as they uh, log in, the first three months are going to actually uh, tell, maybe even less than three months, are going to tell whether they're going to renew or not. Because if you don't get going, you're probably dropping that product and you're just leaving it out there and you're not going to use it, right? But um, if you do have a great, a great experience, a great product experience, a great user experience, um, um, then what's going to happen is that um, the end user is going to become your best salesperson, your best marketer. They're going to tell everybody inside an organization, hey, use this. It's super convenient. I got, it, I got going super easily and it worked. And then all of a sudden now, others jump in and through either a credit card or somehow, you know, through an expansion, um, they're going to uh, expand, right? And that's what uh, net, uh, net retention rate is, right? Is um, you know, is, is how much uh, of the book of business is renewed plus the expansion dollars on top of it, right? So there's a phenomenal opportunity to, to grow as a SaaS business if you have a great UX design. I always say, hey, you, a product-led growth, right? Maybe um, invest in product and usability in UX before you invest in sales and marketing because that's how you're going to get going and that's how you, uh, if you can make user experience Kind of the competitive advantage is going to be fundamental for your growth strategy. And, and just a minute to, to finish this point, um, if you actually have bad UX, it's, it's, it's actually the opposite. It's going to be a showstopper for you. It's going to be, um, you know, basically, um, uh, um, you know, it's going to cut or to reduce your chances of growth. So as C-level, as executives of startups, as, as founders and CEOs, I think you have to pay really close attention to this um, and think that you know you want to increase the productivity of your engineering and design teams, and you certainly want to have a, um, an effective and efficient marketing and growth uh, um, strategy. And UX design becomes a central part of all this. For sure. So, so I have a lot of uh, customers as we build SaaS products in my consultant's firm that they start in the sales-led approach. I agree with you, like the product-led approach, it is uh, the way to go, is a way to scale your business. But what do you think would be like the first steps for, for that business that they maybe they're bootstrapped, they start sales-led, um, 
they're a little bit big to a point. Maybe they got to five, ten million dollars in MMR, and and they're afraid of making that jump. They don't know where to start. Uh, they don't know how to become product led, and maybe they even try and they fail. Uh, and then they're like, that doesn't work. And of course they fail because their user experience wasn't perfect. But like, how would you advise that person um, that already have established? Uh, sales-led business uh, to maybe put product-led in place to allow them to scale? So I, I think that's another brilliant point, Phil. I just identify so much with what you're saying here. And I want to clarify that I'm not suggesting you only go product-led, right? Um, some companies may want to do that because, you know, they have millions and millions of users out there and you want to go to a pure product-led growth strategy, Right. Uh, there are certainly a lot of customers, uh, sorry, a lot of vendors of companies out there doing that. I'm not just what I, the point I was trying to make earlier is that you want to have, um, you know, product be part of your mix, uh, right? Especially early on when you're bootstrapping, you don't have a lot of capital for marketing or sales. So make that product design a, a, a big part. Let's just call it a big or important part of your growth strategy. Having said that, product led is a really broad. Uh, term in my mind. I've heard about product growth for many, many years now. What I would like to actually say about product led, you know, I'd like to break it down into pieces and components of product led. Um, one of it, for instance, could be pricing, right? So you should be able to just buy something online with your credit card and on board. That, that, not, that doesn't necessarily need to happen in all companies. To your point, some companies may be doing the change or the shift to product but they may have more of a sales-led uh, approach. They might not want to offer a freemium or a, a free you know, trial and even purchase online. But you do want to offer more of self-service options, right? Uh, self-service to me is one of the biggest components of product-led. You know, let, let's not uh, mistake or let's not confuse uh, you know, product-led growth and sales-led growth as absolutely total, uh, polar opposites. Uh, you can have what I would say is, is the, the best mix you can have is have you know some components of product led, especially if you've already grown to your point, right? Um, and by the way, at UserZoom we have a, a very similar situation with bigger numbers, but very similar situation. We've been sales led, and we've um, we've had this uh, you know we haven't really uh, used the product led growth approach, but we are adding a lot more self service options where users can can grow and, and you can still, um, you know, allow for expansion. Um, and also users are happy with how your product, right? Um, they may need to check back with you once in a while. You may want to have more of a consultative approach. You may want to have, um, like in our case, for instance, some consulting services as well. But the fact is that um, you still want to focus on and you still want to, um, you know, enable users with self-service options so they can figure things out on their own. Otherwise, some, some users today, what I find in the market is that they don't want to talk to anybody, you know? And they may have other tools out there that are so simple and they are okay with that. So I guess for, for clarification, Phil, uh, you know, I, I don't mean to make it 100% pure product-led, but I do believe that if you can build great UX into your product, um, that enables some of these self-serve options uh, it enables your users to be very, very happy. And with that, um, you can balance it with, you know, the consultative uh, or consulting approach that you mentioned earlier. Just balance it out, you know, um, a little bit. Yeah, I, I like that strategy. And, and I think 
you can pro you probably serving different people, uh, right? Like so, as you're adding the self service, you're at, you're now touching a part of the market that you maybe couldn't touch before, uh, and Correct. you keep going at the same time with both options. You don't have to go out in one and another. But I do believe, but I do believe to that point, we do have segments and we do have, you know, both kind of mid-market and enterprise. I do believe, I, I do strongly believe, I've been thinking about this quite a bit in the last few years, Phil. I do strongly believe that in both cases, in both segments, it applies the same. You still want to have a phenomenal UX as a, as a killer competitive advantage. Even if you do have a much more uh, of a, let's say, you know, high touch, um, you know, um, consult, consulting uh, engagement with the customer, you know, you're still going to have those customers. Like in our case, for instance, a lot of the enterprises we work with, we're very close to them and they appreciate it. But a lot of times also they want to go on their own, right? And do their own thing. And, and the product needs to enable that. So again, it's, for me, it's much more of that self-serve component for those advanced users that maybe just want to go on their own or maybe even some beginners that want to go on their own. Uh, and that is actually important regardless of the segment. For sure, for sure. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I like how this uh, conversation kind of expands on us talking a lot about UI, UX, just trying to understand what user Zoom does. Uh, a big thing of this show, I, I really like to understand how you start your business and, and where you come from when you were about to start, because I feel like um, we see business today, but we don't understand what they went through in the beginning of their business and, and like your 15 years overnight success. So let's, let's talk about those, those first years, uh, and, and go deep, uh, uh, how it was 15 years ago when you're starting user zoom. So, so first, could you tell me like what you were doing before you start this business and, and what were you uh, personally and any before you, you had the idea to, to get going? I love to talk about the story of how we got going at user zoom, because I believe that it's, I think I think it's a model, right, of, of for other entrepreneurs. Um, sometimes entrepreneurs, we have these ideas, or we want, we have this drive and this passion. But um, I always say, fall fall back, fall in love with the problem, um, because otherwise, all this passion is great, but it, you know, there may not be a market for it, right? And so, uh, I'll I'll say that kind of as a, as an intro to to how we got started. We Back in the day, we have to go back to the late 90s where my, my professional career started in web design and development. And, you know, there was some UX, uh, there was some UX design, some very little user research and usability testing. Um, but that's when I started. And that got me thinking, you know, and I was a 26, 27 year old uh, back then. But that got me thinking that, you know, there must be a better way to build websites that are a little more focused on the end user and not so much on the CEO or uh, the, the manager that's putting this website together. Um, and so we started a, a consulting business called Experience Consulting. Uh, nobody was talking about experience, user experience back then, you know, but we were pretty innovative in that sense. And, and we called it Experience Consulting. What we wanted to do is to uh, invite end users over to a physical lab. Uh, it was a room where you had a one-way mirror, kind of like what you see in the police stations. Um, and uh, a full uh, set of equipment, you know, with a camera and a microphone and all that stuff uh, to record the end users uh, using our customers' websites. And what we would do is we'd just basically say, hey, listen, we don't want to re redesign it. We don't want to rebuild it. Like there are so many others out there that do that. We just want to be kind of like the advocate of the user 
and just provide you with a report of how, how, how things work, you know? And by the way, you're invited to observe in the observation room through the one-way mirror. The end user doesn't know that you're out there, but uh, I'm sure you're gonna have some fun. And when customers came, you know, we had these funny anecdotes, you know, the, the user was asked to perform certain tasks. That's how usability testing works, right? Is here's the website, you know, it's new to this user. Sometimes they're not new, but they're just a redesign or something, right? And we would record and say, hey, you know, we're going to ask you to, to complete a series of tasks here and just do your best and also think out loud and, and tell us what you experience and what you think. If it's confusing, if you like it, if you don't like it, we, you know, we're not testing you, we're testing the website. Kind of like that, right? And um, it was so funny, uh, Phil, because uh, a lot of times it was funny, other times it was more dramatic, but, you know, uh, <laughs> the customer would observe from the other side of the room and say, but what are you doing? Just click there. Don't you see? It's right there. Click there. <laughs> and the user would just move on and fail miserably, you know. And <laughs> we, we recorded those video clips. And then it, we use that as our marketing, sort of, you know, going and doing training courses and showing things. And people would be like, oh, my God, I never thought. And, and the point of this is, you know, we are not the user. We're not the end user. Phil, you know, we, we, whether you're a designer or whether you're the entrepreneur and you are Mr. Know-it-all and, and Mr. Smart, uh, you know, you don't, you go through the process of building a, a website and it's very difficult, you know, to, to design great experiences. So with experience consulting, we learned that this was important and this was valuable and we grew the business, you know, to about 3 million or so and 40 people. So let me stop you here. Yeah. Because uh, I, I have a couple of questions. Uh, so... This is back in the 90s. No, this is in the early 2000s. Sorry, from the, from early the 90s, 2000s. We moved on to 2001. Okay, yes. early 2000s. It's still you know, user experience, user testing. It's not a thing. How are you getting customers? How you get people to like pay for this service? This is like, now it's easy. But how, how did you do that uh, back that early? That early? We just, we, we just like threw ourselves, you know, on a cliff. Oh, how are we going to sell this? <laughs> Honestly, there was a lot of, first of all, back then, um, I don't know if you recall, because you seem uh, you know, young, but the 2000 crisis, 2001 crisis, where all these dot-coms were failing, right? And there was this big economic crisis. We, we spoke about the fact that, you know, end users are not using your site and they're, they're leaving, uh, you know, and they're not enjoying the experience and they're having issues. Uh, so how do you know uh, through analytics or through surveys or something? And they would not know. They would basically. So what, what we did is we picked some of the uh, enterprises that we knew, you know, insurance companies and travel businesses, larger companies, technology companies, banks. We picked some of those guys and e-commerce uh, retailers that we knew that they would, uh, this message would resonate with them. You know, we could actually increase your conversion rate here. And, and it wasn't SaaS, by the way, you know, back then, right? Uh, but we can change your conversion rates. So we spoke the business language because all three founders, you know, we were kind of business people um, and, um, and they resonated. So actually we got going. The first customer was the toughest, but then we got going. And um, honestly, you know, it was a services business. So uh, we kept our expenses low and, you know, it took us a while, but after two years or so, we started growing. So that was the case with, with experience consulting in the early 2000s. User Zoom, as we move on, is a completely different animal, okay? And so basically what I wanted to highlight about how we got started with UserZoom is that we started with uh, with a consulting business. Um, UserZoom started in 2007. Um, and what we did is we tried to respond to, again, a gap. We fell in love with the problem. The gap 
was not just that there was a, a user experience or a usability problem, which there was, but the gap was that a lot of people wanted to do this. They, of course, wanted to test websites, but it cost a lot of money. It was manual, um, labor-intensive, and slow, uh, Phil. So what we did is we said, well, we could automate and um, you know, kind of cloudify that, this lab and do thing, this testing and this research remotely, kind of like what happened with online surveys, right? Back in the day, they would do them over the phone or over you know, pieces of paper. And, we, and then they, we had SurveyMonkey and Qualtrics and all these other companies that uh, launched uh, uh, online surveys. We did the same thing, but for user experience research and for, or for user research and user testing. And we launched in 2007 with a different value proposition. In this case, uh, we, would, we would have everything remote. Trust me, we, we've got all sorts of uh, issues with the market. You know, whoa, wait a minute, you're not, you can't see the customer, you, know, you can't touch the, you can't feel the, you're not in the lab. We said, yeah, but you, know, you can scale. So, um, and we started as a services organization. I know you're interested in this. We started providing a service, even though it was remote. The fact is we could provide uh, this 10 users that you usually got you know, uh, in the lab, we, we would be able to do this in a week versus a month, right? And, and also it was very deep and rich. The software would pick up a lot of the data and the behavior data and things like that. So we started providing a service for about two to three years. And then it was in 2009, 2010, when we started seeing the first licenses. So what happened was that we had a conversation with one of our best customers. Uh, actually, I can, I can provide you with the brand. It was Google, who, as you know, is is clearly the leader right now, and they have more user experience researchers than any other company in the world, as far as I understand. And Google back then told us, listen, you guys are great guys, and you're providing great service, Phil, but they said, we want the keys to the car, and we'd like to run our own studies. And that's what, you know, as entrepreneurs, you're like, okay, so first of all, we fell in love with the problem, we understood the gap in the market, you know, we need to scale this. We need to be able to provide a more scalable, cost-effective way to run research. One and two, the market is telling us that they're hiring people in-house, some of these enterprises, and they want to run it on their own. So that then we we, need, we, did, we did the next state uh, change in the business, which was to go SaaS or to provide a, a you know username and password for them to run their own studies. Uh, you see, so really that's how we got started uh, in this business. That's great. I, I wanted to. Talk a little bit about, I love how you did like starting as a service and then because you're, like you're saying, love with the problem, it, it's it's about solving the problem, doesn't matter how. But also uh, services business are, are known for, for be profitable business. Uh, you, you know, a software business, they don't make any money for years and years. So so how do you think that play a role? And, and then do you, was it easier for you guys like coming from a service business transition? Like what are some of the advantages that that you saw for, for doing it that way. So it was really, really hard, Phil, I have to say. Uh, and looking back, uh, we, we, we were a little bit crazy or maybe ignorant. <laughs> and sometimes that's good because you don't see the danger or, or how hard it is. We just felt that, you know, being an entrepreneur is going to be really, really hard. And so we went through it. But the fact is that it was extremely difficult. But what we did is basically, you know, to build a company, I always say the same thing, to, to put together a company or to start up a company is hard. To do it, uh, you know, um, in, in Spain, where, um, you know, we're not well known for uh, tech entrepreneurship. I mean, now things are much better, but not back then in 2007. Um, and then three, to do it uh, here in Silicon Valley, to, to move over the company. In this case, it was myself that moved over 
and um, you know, grew, grew the company here in the U.S. and to do it bootstrap. It's like three things we did. You know, that were very very hard, right? Um, and so what, what we did is we basically overlapped the the consulting business with the software business for you know, I, I want to say two to three years. We got seed capital, but we didn't raise uh, a lot of money, but it was enough, you know. And a lot of the capital came from the from the consulting services. So between the three of us, we were just working super hard at getting both businesses to go and to grow. And then we ended up hiring a bunch of engineers to get that MVP going. Um, but really, it, it, we didn't have a lot of capital in the bank, right? So I think we had, I don't know, maybe a couple of years run rate or something. And it was mostly funded uh, by, um, again, a lot of the services we were providing and it gave us stability. Um, but of course, there was not much money in the bank. And so therefore we were super um, you know, frugal and we were also very um, capital efficient and um, resourceful, you know, just, just resourceful. We were scrappy you know, for many years. Um, so then, uh, you know, once that software as a service got going, you know, honestly, by 2014, we were profitable. We were past the $10 million mark. And um, yeah, it wasn't a lot of profit, but we had we were kind of owners of our own destiny. Um, again, really hard, but we were able to manage that. So you, you the, the revenue from the service business allow you to to take your software business all the way to profitability. Uh, Correct. It, it, and but how how did you balance things? How did you balance the, the customers and and as imagine that the bigger customers are still in the service business and you're trying to you know the the future in the scale it's in the SaaS and you're trying to balance that because I think that's the hard part as you now you have the money from the service business and you don't need outside investors but you also have two things and how did you manage that? Well during those years uh, if I remember correctly you know we were just basically customer focused so if they wanted services we would provide it and then when Google came to us and asked us this, you know, and then we noticed that others followed up. But for about a two or three year period, we just we just offered both options. We were like, you know, we talked about a hybrid model, right? A hybrid model. Um, but then I have to say that we made, uh, uh, you know, kind of a small mistake, which which was that, you know, we, we, we said, let's stop doing any services, you know, and we stopped the services for a few years. I think it was around 2011, 2012. And we missed some opportunities there because we just we were just tired of providing services. It was, it was really hard to scale. And you, to your point, having two businesses with two models was very difficult. So I just I think that the answer to your question would be that we spent you know two or three years just doing what we could, being customer focused and providing both. Um, it wasn't easy, and it wasn't something we could do continue doing, especially without you know capital. Once we did raise capital, I guess we can talk about this in a minute. But you know, once we did raise capital in fifteen, we actually I actually went back, and the first person I hired was a professional services leader to create that services arm. But we went from having you know eighty percent, ninety percent services business, and twenty to ten percent being licenses, you know, or subscriptions, to the opposite, to having you know eighty nine percent licenses. And I think that if we had you know, maybe invested a little bit earlier because of with capital, we would have invested in, you know, in growing a services business. Perhaps, um, you know, we would have uh, we would have had a little, you know, faster growth at some point because a lot of customers asked for that service and we just said no and we gave it to their partners or or whatever, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, ultimately it wasn't easy <laughs> to do. Uh, 
So we we all learn from mistakes. I love that you brought, and you thought it was a mistake to to stop the service. Can we talk a little bit deeper about that? Maybe uh, a, a, an experience. And when did you realize it was a mistake? And like let, let's because so many times when we we hear stories of entrepreneurs, it's like about everything that went well. I love that you were so. Um, open about like, look, it was hard. We made mistakes. So let's, let's, before we, I, I, I definitely want to touch on your funding and bringing the private equity. But before we go there, let's, let's go deeper on that mistake and the lessons that you learned uh, from, from the mistake. Yeah, we made three mistakes, I think. Uh, and I'm happy to talk to them about it, about it. I'm transparent. And yeah, to the point earlier, we want to help others maybe, uh, you know, avoid those mistakes. But now the first one I think was, yeah, we, we dropped services um, and, and, you know, what happened was that there was a lot of um, prospects in the market that if we had had the service, I think they would have uh, joined us uh, or they would have um, maybe chosen us. Uh, because what we did is we went to the advanced users and, you know, that target group, we never thought, Phil, you know, the thing is that we never boost, we, we never raised capital and we never um, uh, thought that honestly, this was going to be a big market for us. Uh, I just got to be honest. And, and that's also a good thing. If you can say, hey, your total addressable market is small and I'm just going to be you know, a 5 to $10 million business, that's totally fine. That's already super success in my mind, right? So, and again, we were profitable. So we were owners of our own, of our own destiny. Lots of times in Silicon Valley, it's like, no, 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 you got to be growing, growing, growing and super fast. That's not necessarily true. And so in our case, you know, we moved here to the Valley, but we were kind of okay with growing steadily. And, and, and so a lot of the customers we picked were just advanced and they didn't want uh, uh, services, right? And so we could have grown and we could have actually picked up a bunch of customers that were maybe more amateurish or not amateur, but, you know, kind of starting in this space. And uh, had we not dropped services altogether, uh, I think we would have uh, had more customers. And, you know, our competition did that and made it easy for them. And, uh, you know, they, they, they grew and they have ultimately actually uh, became even bigger than us. Uh, you know, today, I think we kind of share the market, um, but they did take off. Uh, and I think it was a lot of the services that were going were happening underneath, you know, uh, under the, the licenses or in, in, in combination with the licenses. That was the first mistake. I think the second mistake was that because we were so focused on those advanced users, we didn't do what I just explained to do earlier for SaaS, you know, the, the, the advice I was giving SaaS businesses. We didn't really invest that much in UX design ourselves. You know? <laughs> um, so we built a product that was extremely advanced and innovative and, and feature-rich, but it wasn't as easy to use. And you know, we've, we've made a lot of changes and improvements to that since then. Um, but that was something we should have done. I think, again, if we had done that, we would have also increased our growth rate. Last but not least, Again, to the point about the market opportunity, because it wasn't uh, because we weren't sure how big this opportunity was, we didn't raise any capital for seven years. Uh, Phil, you know, we, we typically you say bootstrap for three years, for four years, but seven years, and like we waited all the way to fifteen, right? Um, and um, I think that if we looking backwards, looking back, I think I would have raised. I think it would have been great to raise, you know, maybe two or three million dollars. Um, to to take a little bit more risk, you know, a controlled risk, you know, with a minority uh, investment. And we didn't do that again. And we just kept going and going and going. Um, and um, I think that's a third, you know, I wouldn't call it a mistake, just simply a missed opportunity that, you know, we could have, could have uh, taken advantage of. Yeah, thanks for sharing. So, so uh, let's 
talk about um, the market. It looks like you stay in the sophisticated market, the, the high-end user. Do you think it was because like from the beginning you had big customers like Google and you're like, okay, that's who I want to keep serving. And, and you think that's kind of like what happened? And how did you get those huge clients, by the way? <laughs> Great question too. Uh, you know, I always talk about focus and focus and focus, especially at the beginning. Um, and we learned from this MIT professor uh, that gave us a phenomenal uh, lecture. Um, actually, it was in Barcelona. And, you know, his name is Ken Morris. And he came in with a phenomenal uh, lecture on focus, like how important it is. And we were not thinking about this. We would just take anybody that would call us, right, in those early years. But he said, look, focus on uh, you know, one or two, maybe even just one target persona. And what we, what we got out of that as a... As a I guess as a lesson learned was we got to focus on those big, sophisticated, advanced users who really you know want to. They, first of all, they pay more, uh, and they value more, and they renew more, back to retention. Yeah. And we, and we did, and so yes, uh, those were the ones that kind of you know um, helped us uh, you know and fuel the growth of, of user zone. Um, so I think focus is important. Uh, however, as you grow. Um, I think that one of the things that we did is we started, you know, looking at broadening that and also working with customers that were not uh, fans. They just simply want some basic solutions. Um, and I think that that's when you come with a land and expand strategy, right? You, you start with something and you land and it doesn't have to be the biggest contract. It can just be a, a great starting point and then grow with them and then use education and use evangelization and use your sometimes your services to help them uh, grow with you, um, which is what we're doing today. Okay, so, so, so the lesson learned here, it's like the strategy of how you start was great. You really focused, but you took a little bit to expand into that little market and you think that should go early. And the same goes to, to your point for investing. You, you think you should have done that a little bit earlier. So, so but we eventually did. 2015, you decided to bring a private equity as a partner. Uh, so walk me through the process, the decision, uh, and, and how did that go? That was a phenomenal um, deal, I think, uh, because what happened was this. We bootstrapped the business. We're, you know, I'm from Madrid. My partners were in Barcelona, and we had the board in Barcelona. And this is a Spanish company that has very strong presence, about 80%, if not 90% of the revenue in the U.S. Yeah? Um, and, uh, you know, there's competition, and there is, um, you know, opportunity in the market that we observed in 2014, uh, like we hadn't observed, like we hadn't seen in the previous years. So at that point, we were like, hey, we, we, we should go for capital. We, we need to, you know, go for kind of building a big business here. So let's open it up to VCs um, and or for capital raising. And uh, I think we all agreed in the, in, you know, on the board that if we got the right offer, uh, this was going to be the best thing for the business. And so initially, we were going to just raise some you know, minority investment uh, to continue growing and to be able to compete. Um, but what happened was, um, for us, we had to be what we call redomesticate, which is basically to flip the business from the Barcelona off uh, business to a U.S. business, a Delaware business. And also the board was going to be moved here and, you know, there was going to be a, a big change. And so at that point, you know, it felt like the, the business was going to change dramatically and the control was going to change and all that stuff. So we decided ultimately that, you know, that um, a, a, a majority investment uh, with the private equity uh, was going to be a win-win. Uh, the, the three co-founders were, we still owned the majority of the business. We had some business angels 
and we had an opportunity. We had a lot of equity. I mean, at, at that point, we're looking at a 12, if I remember correctly, about 12 million revenue, profitable and growing, you know, healthy growth and in an interesting space. So we actually, without pitching to investors, Phil, uh, you know, I say this openly and I kind of brag about it, but, you know, without pitching, we had offers. We had plenty of offers, you know, for at a nice valuation. And we're talking 2015, you know, uh, valuations were very different than today. But, um, you know, we ultimately said, hey, we can take some money off the table. There's some there's some good liquidity for the founders who, have, you know, have been for many years, just like month to month, right? Um, and um, and also we can pay back to our, you know, early investors. Everyone won with this. And then the next thing was, hey, let's, a, let's build a big business here. There's an opportunity. Let's go on. So we kept enough skin in the game to keep going. And it was just a great... Uh, uh, I think a great deal. Professionalize the business and keep going. Did, did you ever uh, have a M&A advisor or like you just like the private equities were reaching out to you, you picked the one that you liked the best and you went with? So to be honest with you, I liked, we did, we did work with an advisor earlier and they were, they were great, uh, but the timing was not good. Uh, this was like a couple of years before that. Okay. Um, and, and so I, I had a good experience with them. You know, we had great conversations, <clears throat> but it just wasn't working from a timing perspective. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, what, what, I, what I would say that I did, um, I'd like to kind of give myself a little pat on the back here, uh, which I don't usually do. But um, the fact is I built a network and I had a ton of presentations and, and conversations with investors. And by the way, investors reached out we, we, I, I want to actually um, uh, give kudos to uh, the Plug and Play Tech Center, uh, which is a kind of like a mini Silicon Valley within uh, within Silicon Valley. You know, they're based out of Sunnyvale, and we were there for many years as a startup. Um, and we have the, the ability to network because they have a phenomenal network with investors and um, you know and the investment community. So we built kind of this you know rapport and the relationship for for years. And uh, these investors just keep knocking on the door and saying, hey, how are you guys doing? It seems like it's an interesting market. You guys had some traction. So I guess to answer your question, we did not use M&A advisor for this deal. Um, we, had a, we had this network that we had built. Um, and uh, frankly, they all came and, and they had heard about us. Uh, they had, we had cultivated those relationships. And by the time uh, we made a deal with Sunstone, uh, with Gus Alberelli and, and Sunstone team, which came from Trident back in the day, you know, it was a a new fund uh, called Sunstone Partners. Uh, you know, they knew about us. They knew about our space. They've done the research. And also from a chemistry and culture perspective, it was a good fit, you know. Um, so that's that's kind of how it all went down. And we had a, a few conversations, uh, not a lot of negotiation, to be honest with you. There was offers that were maybe a high valuation, but we felt like this was the right team. And and certainly, you know, seven years later, we feel like we made the right, the right uh, decision. That's great because you were able to just out of your own connections do that. So you say you start with VC and there's a difference between VC and private equity. You end up closing and do a private equity versus a VC. Could you talk a little bit about the difference between the two and why you think a private equity, uh, and I think you say they, they had a majority of your business after the deal. I'm not sure if I hear it correctly. Correct. Why yeah. do you think a, a private equity was a best for you guys and how do you see the difference between private equity and VC? I think the difference mostly is, um, you know, a private equity typically likes to own a majority, right? It, they like to put together their uh, operating uh, experience and um, their capital, and they like to grow with companies that are, you know, 
profitable, maybe not growing super fast. They're not burning a ton of money. In fact, they like profitable businesses. And then they like to use their operating experience and their, their sort of playbook to perhaps even make it more profitable and help with growth and essentially, you know, get a time, a five times, maybe more, hopefully, uh, like what happened with Sunstone, plenty more uh, return on investment, right? Or multiple on their investment. Um, VCs tend to like minority investments and high, faster growth and a little more risk. It's just a different model, right? And they might just come in and be part of your board and help you out, but actually not really be that active. Now, private equity tends to be very active and they tend to kind of, you know, I wouldn't say tell you what to do, but they are certainly, you know, they have a voice because they want to, they own the, comp- the company. Ultimately, they become kind of your boss, right? Um, to be honest with you, with, with Sunstone, you know, I felt that there was a good mix uh, between, you know, them telling me what to do, uh, you know, even providing me with the chairman of the board and became a co-CEO. But the influence that I still had in the business as a co-founder and co-CEO was, was, was still great. You know, they don't want to, you know, kind of destroy <laughs> what you've done. It's kind of uh, silly. Some private equities are well known for being very strict and, and not good about that. Um, luckily, in our case, with both uh, Sunstone and Stoma Bravo, it hasn't been the case. You know, they really want the founders to be part of the, of the next step, step of the journey, you know, and they, but um, back to your point that, you know, they like to own the majority um, and, and just be very active and they provide you with a ton of operating experience and partners that can join the board and, 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 and the team. Um, VCs, again, are going to be much more about fast, fast growth, you know, land grab, growth at all costs. And it's just a completely different philosophy, a different way to manage a business. Yeah, I, I think founders should be, really be aware of that when they're looking for investors, because like you say, VCs, they're okay if you fail, because they're like, make it or, or die. And I think when you look at private equities, they're like, okay, I want a profitable business. They're buying a business because they wanted to succeed. They're like, they're a lot more invested. And I think it there's no right or wrong, but there's the personality of the founder. I imagine that you that run a profitable business for years and years would be so hard to raise VC money. And now we start to run on a profitable business, like kind of like going out in. So I think founders should, should take that into consideration. And I would love to hear from you. Like, what did you learn? How did you grow a CEO now having a boss? You're still the CEO, but like now you respond to someone. You're like kind of like a public company at this point, right? Uh, you have investors money. So how, how was your, your personal growth? How you had to change, uh, to, to, to keep. Like, because there's a lot of people that after their first exit, they don't make to the second like you did. They, they end up fired. Like, they, they can't, they can operate in that environment, and you did a good job at that. So, so walk me through. <laughs> I could write another book about this one. Yeah, <laughs> seriously, I, I, I've thought about this and talked about this so much, you know, both internally and externally. <clears throat> one word, ego. Just one word. Let's think about that word, right? Ego. And what does that mean? Listen, I think that um, the way I respond to this question is I go back to my to my basketball, um, you know, um, experience. Uh, I play basketball all my life, and I'm a team player. And one of the things that happens when uh, an investor comes in, uh, I would say this is even without an investor, but even much more important when an investor comes in, and I, I think even more important when a private equity comes in. It's all about the team. It's not about you. It's all about the success of the baby, not about you. And sometimes, especially if you're a first-time CEO like I was, um, you may just not know. You may just not know 
And you've got one of the things I've learned, and I was able, I was fortunate to partner with a couple of really experienced operators, is that, oh my God, there's so much to know and to do when you're scaling a business past, you know, 20, 30, 50, and now we're reaching 100. I mean, there's so much to know, Phil, that you, I just didn't know. Now, how many people are actually able to say, raise their hand and say, I don't know, or I didn't know, or I'm not the right person to make that decision, or I need help? Um, very hard to do when you've been the founder and you've created a business and you think that you're Michael Jordan or you know Spider-Man or some sort of superhero, which you are, by the way, because it's very difficult to do that. But I, I, what, I, what I thought, when I went through the years, it was really hard for me to do this, by the way. Psychologically, you know, I lost a lot of sleep. And, but looking back, honestly, I, what I did is I put my ego aside. I still kept some ego, but it was all about success. And, you know, uh, I think the reason why I've, I've uh, you know, I've still, I'm welcome <laughs> to be part of user Zoom uh, with, you know, both by Sunstone and by Tomo Bravo is because I think that I put the team first. I put the company's interest first and mine uh, personal second. As long as I'm okay and I'm aligned with the strategy, the vision, and they haven't changed dramatically uh, what we put together, which hasn't happened in our case, um, you know, I still, you can still be a huge influence without being the CEO. By the way, I'm not uh, the CEO now. So back with Sunstone, I was CEO and then co-CEO, you know, for six years. But then um, now uh, that Tomo Bravo has come along, we made a decision to actually uh, convert me or move me over to more of a chief visionary officer and have a, a CEO that is a, a very experienced operator who has been there, done that after 100 million to 200, 300, 400, or even more. I don't know how to do that. And so um, I'm happy to team up with, with, in this case, David Murphy, who's become the CEO, and I'm just there helping and advising the company in many, many ways. I like what you say, because you have to become a different person. I, I have a friend, and he built three businesses to $10 million. Uh, so he, he built the first one, $10 million. The business got sold, made a bunch of money, and then he got fired, and then he felt very bad. Uh, he, built, he built the second one, uh, $10 million, uh, and then he got fired again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the third time, he was like, look, I, I know who I am. I am the zero to 10. I'm not the next guy. And so in the third business, he didn't get fired. He learned. It's like, look, this is how I am. And he got humble. It looks like you didn't have to get fired twice to learn the lesson, which is pretty impressive. You, you like really change. And, and it's even cool to see now the, the company went to the the second acquisition. And you're like, I, I'm not a CEO, the 100 million plus CEO. I wanted someone to be there and I want to be there to advise and to learn. But, but you had to change every single time. Is it, there are different people that, that do zero to 10, 10 to 100 and 100 plus. They're like different personalities, different everything, right? Absolutely. And I'm not even as a CEO, but there's a, a lot of employees that are great in the first stages that may not make it in the second or third stages because maybe they're just like, you know, they're not, uh, they, they have a different personality or they provide with, you know, they provide the business with different value. Some people want to do everything and they want to be very involved. And those guys are phenomenal, like kind of like a one person army. And they're, um, you know, um, they're very versatile and that's the kind of, and they're very dedicated. Uh, they, they feel like they're super uh, huge part of the business and make a big impact. Those guys are phenomenal employees to hire when you're um, in the early stages. When you're, when you start growing, it's all about scale. It's all about uh, empowering others. It's all about making things repeatable. 
It's all about focusing on talent and you getting out of the way. Uh, it's all about um, you know building a middle management team. Ah, uh, and there's processes and there's tools and there's systems. All that stuff is all about operating excellence. Has got nothing, nothing to do with the first ten million. Trust me, or even twenty. It's a completely different job, Phil. Um, and I personally, I, I'm honest with everybody. That's not the type of job I want to do. I feel like I'm a good, you know, maybe up to up to fifty, up to a hundred million. From there, um, somebody else should run it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's, it's so important to realize who you are and what's great. But I love what you say about the team, because it must be for you as a founder that brought this team and now seeing that they're not cut off to the next stage. It must be very hard on yourself. Uh, and so how, how do you how do you walk through that? And like maybe even have to let someone go because now they're not the right person. Uh, so tell me about that. My toughest uh, moments, uh, obviously, there's, there's a ton of tough moments in, in the 15-year journey. But um, you know, one of them was was actually letting go of people that I knew were had made a great impact, and we were close, and they were great people, uh, great employees. But you could just tell after having multiple conversations, you could just tell they were not going to scale, and they were not the right people for for the next stage. You know, conversations around the fact that you know things were not automated or were not actually you know, um, registered in, in, a, in, a, in a, you know, cloud tool, let's just call it, whether it's a CRM or ERP or whatever, you know, because the next stage was going to be completely different and this person was not going to be the right leader for it. So mostly it was a leadership issue. You know, uh, one of my favorite, most favorite books is, is Good to Great by Jim Collins. And they talk, he talks at length about it's a who problem or it's a, right people at the right place in the bus uh, thing uh, that you have to worry about when you scale versus, um, you know, a, a what problem, you know, it's, it's, it's about talent. So yeah, those, that was, that was tough. And by the way, I used myself as an example. I said, look, I stepped down, I you know, became a co-CEO versus leading it all myself or just threatening the company to leave. And then uh, ultimately now with the CBO, chief visionary officer, you know, just handing it over to somebody who has more experience. And if you can do that yourself, you're setting an example for others to do it. Um, I think I think uh, at some point you're going to run into that. And if you do, by the way, you're very successful. You know, I, I'm, I'm very proud of what we've built so far. But, uh, yeah, I can only imagine how hard those conversations have to be. And like, um, just because these people, like you say, they had such a big impact on your business and now they're not developing. Uh, they're not the right people in the right they don't supposed to even to be in the bus anymore because I feel like you did a very good job at changing seats in the bus, but like maybe going back to that ego, there are some people that don't want to do that. Uh, and so like, I mean, I can, could you maybe go deeper? I mean, I just, it's just, I feel like that has been so much growth for you as a leader. And I know I, I just literally had a conversation with the company that I am involved with, I won't say, but you know, <clears throat> here, the, the CEO and I had a conversation about some, some, you know, family members in the team and some professionals that he wants to bring in. And there, there's a need for a reorg, you know, at some point. The company's also scaling, you know, past the 20 million, uh, uh, close to 30 million. And um, it's a very difficult conversation. Sometimes, again, even family members. But um, listen, ultimately this is one of the reasons why being an entrepreneur is so hard and being a great leader is so hard. It's because you have to make tough decisions. It's really bad 
a really bad leader doesn't make decisions or doesn't make changes when the company needs it at the right time. And, uh, the, the, and a poor leader doesn't think about talent, uh, but thinks that, oh, we can continue and maybe product and focus on product and stuff like that, which you still have to focus on product. But if you don't focus on the talent, the org structure, um, and the right people in the right place in the bus, as we said earlier, you're really being a poor leader. So it's, it's not just that it's tough. Uh, it's that you have to do it. And it's part of, it's part of the journey and it's part of how you, how much sleep you're going to lose because you're going to feel bad about this. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I, I love it what you say. It's part of you growing as a leader yourself because you have to do it, and that's how you become a good leader. Uh, so, recently this year, you guys had to deal with Thomas Bravo, uh, and you again changed your seat in the bus. Uh, could you tell us a little bit first about that deal? What can you share about that deal? How it went? How it changed your life? Uh, and and how it is now having this new seat in the bus? So. The Sunstone deal we did in 2015 was, was like a warm-up. <laughs> Back to the basketball analogy, we were warming up with Sunstone and, and, and understanding that there is a, a boss, there is a, a company that owns the business, um, you know, and they're giving you a lot of support, right? Um, but it, it feels a certain way, right? When you're working with, the, with getting up in the morning, you know that you have a boss out there and, you know, um, some sort of objectives and also also a playbook. You know, you're looking at profitability, not growth, and all that stuff that you should have discussed all of this up front. It's one of the first advices. Back to your point about entrepreneurs knowing whether they go to BEs or VCs, discuss up front the goal and the strategy and the growth. Um, you know, be okay with putting all the cards on the table and saying, hey, this is, a, this is an opportunity where we have to invest $100 million and go everywhere, geographic expansion and all that stuff. I don't care if we lose money buy a bunch of companies or is this more of a we're going to grow 20 to 30 percent maybe 40 percent uh but we're going to do it profitably you know and in two three years there's got to be otherwise heads roll uh, you should be discussing this up front and you know with with, with companies so with back to Tomo bravo um you know we had the warm-up with with sunstone it be, it was it was going to be literally this month seven years since we did the deal with Tomo bravo with the sunstone sorry and so we started having conversations at the end of last year. I had had multiple conversations with Tomo Bravo, um, you know, three to four years ago um, in some conferences that we met, um, and then we continued the conversation. So once again, like the Sunstone deal, we had had conversations many years prior. We got to know each other, and they understood our market, and they understood our, what, we, what we were after. And then year after year, we were telling them we were kind of meeting those targets. We were just exaggerating on hope or hoping or wishful thinking. We actually did it. So uh, come, uh, I think it's Q4 last year, you know, the pandemic has actually been good to us. We're growing uh, faster and we're doing really well. Um, and we don't really need to do this deal, to be honest with you. Um, you know, Samsung wasn't in a hurry. You know, we have plenty of, of cash in the, in the bank. But the fact is that Tomo Brown comes in with a really strong uh, value prop and message. Look at us. Um, as the partner, uh, first of all, as a stop of the journey, this is not an exit. We don't, we don't like to talk about exits or uh, acquisition. I like to look at it as a, as a strategic growth investment, okay? Um, and, and they, you know, look at it as a stop of the journey. Look at us as a partner that can enable you to speed up and to accelerate your vision. Um, we want to keep everybody that is in the bus, maybe add a few here and there because, you know, it's a new stage of the business. Um, 
And uh, yeah, and also, uh, you know, a pretty nice, happy you know, valuation of $800 million. Not bad for a company that started in Spain with Zip, right, a, a few years ago. Um, so also, there was going to be a great return on investment for everybody. Once again, for the founders, but also for Sunstone and many employees. Just a, just a, a, a great story. Um, so I'll be honest with you, and I'm very open with everybody about it. I was skeptical at the beginning. It's like, why? You know, we were doing so well. Why would we do this? We can just wait. Um, and we didn't know that there would be a crisis this year, to be honest with you, right? So <laughs> from a timing perspective, it's phenomenal, phenomenal to have closed in, you know, in, in March, April timeframe. Um, but the fact is that um, these guys are, if not the number one, one of the top three software private equity investors. And boy, does that matter because you have a ton of support. They know what, what, what you can do out there. They give you a lot of help. Um, they are supportive. We actually acquired a company that I wasn't thinking that we were going to be able to acquire because they came in and they said, yes, let's do it. You know, definitely showing that they have the muscle, uh, you know, to help us out. Uh, I think they, they have a, a, the right culture as well. You know, uh, these guys don't have this, you know, this typical image of, you know, People with ties and, and, and jackets, and you know, they are they are um, you know they're they're pretty innovative, and I, I I feel like they have some great they've made some great invest investments as well in their in our space, and so they believe in our space, they believe in our people, they believe in our mission and vision. So we said yes, let's do it. Um, and um, so far, um, so far, honestly, it's been great. That that's that's super. Super cool to, to hear. Again, going back to uh, those two journeys, right? Like you can go PE or you can go VC and you, you go PE and you make your company worth almost $1 billion. It's it's super exciting to see there, there's like more than one way to get there, right? And, and that's the way that, that work for, for you guys. And it's so amazing to, to see uh, your success. So like, I have just two more final questions for you. Uh, we are coming to an hour here. I don't want to hold you for so long. That's fine. <laughs> I have some space. <laughs> okay. So, like, um, first, I always ask to, uh, like to ask if you could go back in time and you meet yourself 2007, 2010, uh, and, and, and you could tell something to yourself, uh, what would you tell? I'd, I'd go back to those three mistakes that I highlighted earlier that I would have, you know, if I could just go back, I'm very proud and I have no regrets, right? I'm very proud of what we've done. But I think we could have, you know, again, uh, knowing what you know now after the journey, it's just crazy. You know, uh, you could probably go back to, uh, you know, some other, if I were to do it over again, for instance, not just going back, but maybe do it again, right? Um, in both cases, I think I would, um, you know, I would actually work on those three mistakes or I would try to avoid those three mistakes that I mentioned earlier. One is, I think, I think it's really important to work on, you know, having great UX in your product. I'd love to hire a designer and a, and a, and a product leader before I hire a marketer and a salesperson. You know, I just feel like that's something that is really important now. And if we had done that before, uh, it would have paid off. Um, I think the second thing I would do is, you know, bootstrapping is great and, and don't get me wrong if you can do it, but um, you can find the balance between maybe raising even a little bit more seed capital and not have to go through the hardship that I went through, especially moving here to the Valley. Today, I think you can work in the, you know, a lot more, like you can work remotely and you can be have talent all over the place. It's much easier. But for me, those initial years were really tough. 
you know, it was really tough in the family, uh, really tough to financially. We were just very, um, you know, very stressed out, you know. Um, so the, I probably would have raised a little bit more, even though I like the concept of bootstrapping and I recommend it. I do say, hey, um, you know, try to balance it out and don't don't go through too much hardship. Um, and then the third one was this, uh, this you know, picking the, the you know, full services or, um, or, or full, you know, subscription model or PLG versus, you know, more consultative approach. I would try to merge, I would try to have a hybrid model um, a little earlier versus the extremes. Those, those three things, potentially. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And, and I love like the finding the balance in everything, right? Like finding the balance, when is the time to, to bring the money? Uh, so where is the business headed now? Like now you're the visionary. You're not going to be there <laughs> this year, but you're the visionary. So where is the business headed? Uh, or maybe where it is today? What could you share about where it is now after the acquisition and where it's headed? So I like to say that every company, either uh, a .com or a brick and mortar, big or small in every single um, industry vertical is a digital experience company. That's how I look at the world. Every company is a digital experience company. Let me break this down for you. What, is that, what does that mean? It's part of my vision. It's part of our vision as a company, right? It, and this was prior to the pandemic, but, you know, uh, or pre-pandemic, but even with the, with the pandemic, it became even more important, right? It, with every brand, we interact with, we're going to have either an app or a website, and we're going to interact with that brand um, through some sort of digital use UI. Yeah? Um, and in some cases, you don't even want to anymore talk to uh, somebody or, or have a physical uh, um, relationship. I don't know, banks, insurance, how much how, how much do you go to, the, to, the, to those branches, right? Or, or um, retailers. Um, travel. I mean, there's so many. And then, of course, in the enterprise software space, how much is uh, now, you know, you're remote, right? So you're working remotely and you're using all these tools to collaborate. Everything is happening through a digital. Again, whether you're a digital company or not. Now, what's the difference between digital and a digital experience? I've been spending quite a bit of time explaining this because the book of the book that I just wrote, it, you know, it's called The Digital Experience Company. I don't know if you if you've seen it, but here's here's a copy I'm very proud of, right? The Digital nice. Experience Company. Yes, I saw that. I, I, I own that book. I didn't realize you, you were the person that wrote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't yeah. read it yet. Winning. <laughs> now you have a, another excuse to, for, you know, uh, to, to read it. But um, winning in the experience economy or winning in, sorry, winning in the digital economy, you know, by, by gaining a lot of experience insights, right? So, a digital experience company is different from a digital company because it's not it's not good enough to say I am a digital company. I you know I'm the CEO of uh, GM or you know a large enterprise out there, and we invest a ton in IT and digital and our digital channels. It's not enough. You're a digital experience company. You're providing experiences. Your customer uses you and interacts with you through the front end, not the digital, not the back. Every, you know, when you think about it, you know, they say, I'm, I'm in a software space. I'm in a software space. Uh, to me, that's not enough. To me, it's all about providing a great front end, which obviously design is what matters in this case, right? They, not just the look and feel of design, but how it works. How easy and convenient is it to use these, these, these products and, and engage? You know, maybe you're an employee. Maybe you're using a, a tool every day to do something in your internet or something. 
you know, and that product needs to, like you have to create your own expenses or something. Those things need to make you productive and need to, need to make you feel like that's a great employee experience. So this is not just for dot coms or for B2C companies, but also B2B and certainly enterprise. So my vision, back to your question, is that every company is a digital experience company and therefore they're just going to invest and they're going to have to invest a lot more into understanding the end user, the end user before their customers. Sometimes they're not even customers. Again, there might be just employees um, in order to succeed because the competitors, you know, think about what Air ta- um, uh, Airbnb or Uber or DoorDash, you know, or car gurus, those companies have taken over the relationship with the customer by providing portals, websites, apps that work so well that even though they don't own uh, the actual assets, a hotel, a car, whatever, that's that's where the value is, you know? So the new way of building software is through insights that you collect constantly in every stage of the product development, uh, design and development uh, lifecycle to fuel um, the way you build software. And that's where we're at as as users. We're... We're basically the one source of truth, the, the, the insights provider for product people, product uh, digital product leaders uh, and digital product professionals, user experience researchers, designers, uh, engineers, and product managers to build their products focused on the end user and with insights rather than you know gut feel or whatever the designer wants to do. Um, and that's, that's our vision. Every company is going to do this and um, yeah, uh, one source of truth, one system of record for companies to to manage their digital products. If I can just summarize, you're like maybe it's about time we start to build the right the right feature, the right strategy, not just like throw stuff in the wall and, and hope they work. Exactly, exactly. And there's yeah. plenty there's plenty of ways to do it in a cost effective way. It used to be very expensive and time consuming, but now there's no excuse. You can get insights and responses from these users within hours on your prototypes. Uh, there's no excuse of why you should be, you know, again, insights driven and customer or user centric. And for people that want to learn more about that, does, is your book a good resource? Of course. The book is not so much about how to do research or it doesn't go into depth. Like, you know, this is not a, a book for the researchers. This is mostly a book for product leaders and maybe even C-level and certainly startups that are thinking about Okay, uh, this sounds really sexy and stuff, but you know why? Why would I do this? The, the focus is really on return on investment and on helping people. Very much a lot of the things we've talked about today: retention, growth strategy, efficiency, productivity, capital efficiency. A lot of these things are highlighted in the book. Awesome, Alfonso. It was great to have you today. Uh, so much insight in the show. Thank you very much for for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening and remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.